morning, everyone. And uh, thank you so much, Holly, for reading for us. And thank you, James, for leading us. Please do keep your Bible open or on at uh, Revelation 11. Last week, towards the end, I sounded a kind of warning or uh, rather give you a heads up regarding this particular chapter of Revelation. Because as someone has said, and I did kind of quote this last week, but I'm going to quote it again. People find many books puzzling, but the Bible is often the most puzzling of all. People find many parts of the Bible puzzling, but Revelation is often seen as the most puzzling book of all. And people find Revelation puzzling, but the first half of chapter 11 is for many the most puzzling part of all. Now, I know what some of you have been probably thinking, hang on, I could suggest a few other contenders for the most puzzling parts of Revelation, in fact, any of it, if not all of it, and that's fair enough, but there's no doubt that Revelation 11 is difficult. Revelation 11 is really tricky to interpret, and so I'm going to attempt, and there's a strong emphasis this morning on attempt, to walk us through it. I'm going to try to bring some level of clarity in it and hopefully discover and encourage us to be who we're meant to be and to do what we're meant to do in these days, in these last days. And so here's the end game, or here's my aim for today, that we would walk out of here knowing a little bit more about who we are and what we do plus what we wear. Is that okay? Who we are, what we do, what we wear. Okay, just a quick reminder of where we are in this letter. In Revelation 6, six out of seven seals were opened. And then there was a pause before the seventh was slit. And during that pause, which is Revelation 7, the question, who can stand was addressed in chapter 7 in that pause. Who can stand in the face or in the wake of God's judgments? And the answer was given, those who've been sealed by God, those who've been saved by Jesus. And then in that chapter, we saw this amazing picture of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual multitude standing in heaven. Then in chapters 8 and 9, Six out of seven trumpets were sounded depicting God's judgment on those who dwell on the earth, on unbelievers. But in it and through it all, the purpose was, the purpose of those judgments was and is repentance. God does not want any to perish. That's his heart. But that all should reach repentance. And so there's still time. Mercy extends. And so what the trumpets do is they sound a note or numerous notes of warning. Judgment. There's time. There's mercy still available. And then there's another pause before the seventh trumpet is blown. And that pause lasts all of chapter 10 and right to verse 14 of chapter 11. And last Sunday, we looked at part one of this pause. We looked at chapter 10, and we discovered or suggested a number of lessons, a number of factors to take on board as we as Christians live in the here and now amidst of all that is going on and kicking off. 
So here's what we learned last week. God is in control. God is sovereign over all, over us. He knows so much more than we do. There's so much we do not understand. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are high above. and It's okay. There will be no more delay. Jesus will come soon. We must allow the better sweet taste of God's Word to be a core part of our daily diet. And so I hope this week you've been consuming this as we talked about last week. Digesting it, absorbing it, taking it on board, living it out, speaking it out. And that's what we are called to do. And so today, chapter 11, we come to part two of this pause where we discover who we are, what we should be doing, and what we wear as God's judgment is being worked out on the stage of history, as it is being right now. So let's jump into this. And that's why if, if you can have a copy of God's Word in front of you, it's going to be really helpful. Now remember, there are something like 500 references to and from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. At least 500 references. And this particular text, Revelation 11, is saturated with them. And so we're going to be referencing back quite a bit this morning. In chapter 10, you'll remember God, John was invited into the drama and he was told, hey, go to the angel, take the little scroll from his hand and eat it. Well, John in chapter 11 is involved again. This time he is told, grab hold of a measuring tape and measure the temple. Now, this isn't talking about a literal physical building mainly because, remember, this is around A.D. 96, and there wasn't one anymore. It had been leveled in A.D. 70. So this is a reference to a different temple. This is a reference to the new temple of God, which is the people of God, which is how Christians are referred to right throughout the New Testament. Here's just one example. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, Do you not know that you, that is you, the local church, you are the temple of God? and that the Spirit dwells in you. So this is about the church. This is about the church then. This is about the church now. This is about the church today. This is about us. The Old Testament reference and echo here, and I know lots of you know this, but it's from Zechariah 2, where a man appears with a measuring line in his hand, and he's told to measure Jerusalem. And in that context, God says, and God explains this, for I will be a, a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in, our, in its midst. And so the implication or the connection to Revelation 11 is that John is told to measure the people of God because God is communicating how he will be in their midst as a wall of fire, protecting them as they face all kinds of challenges, as they face tribulation, as they face pressure, as they face, face hostility and persecution. Going to be a wall of fire around them. Going to protect them. They're secure. They're not insulated. They're not removed. They're protected. It's a bit like Revelation 7, that picture of Christians being sealed and saved. They will stand secure. And this insight must have been music to the ears of the first readers who are feeling the heat. And so we move on because John is instructed not to measure the outer court. 
for it has been given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We're going to come to that number in a moment. But the issue here is that the people of God are going to face some level of conflict and opposition from those who are outside the temple, from those who are outside the people of God, from those who are currently unbelievers, for those who have not repented, for those who are not currently protected by God, which is exactly what was happening in the first century. It's exactly what's happening in the 21st. Christians are up against it physically up against it in many places in our world today, socially up against it, emotionally up against it, spiritually. Their views are opposed or ridiculed. Their values are trashed. Their message is slated. It's branded narrow and foolish. Their gospel is rejected. And it's going to be like this for 42 months. Now, as with all numbers, and hopefully if you've been tracking this series, you'll notice, as with all numbers in Revelation, in apocalyptic literature, this is a symbol, not a statistic. And so, for example, 42 months, and by the way, 42, this period of time, time would have rang all kinds of bells with the first readers of Scripture, and those steeped in it. So 42 months, which is 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, which if you go back to Daniel, is that really strange phrase that he uses that we're going to come up against in Revelation. It's a time, times, and half a time. Okay, are we all confused? Yeah. But all these numbers, 42 months, 1,260 days, all the same, three and a half years, all the same, time, times, and half a time, time, a year, times, two years, half a time, half a year, so there's your three and a half years. It's all interchangeable. It's all symbolic. It is the length of time, for example, that it did not rain, as the prophet Elijah was calling the nations to repentance. According to Jesus, it was three and a half years. It was 42 months, 1260 days, 42 stages in Israel's journey through the desert. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, there are 42 generations listed, three sets of 14. This number would have rang all kinds of bells. It's symbolic. Here in Revelation 11, it's the length of time the people of God are going to be under pressure from the nations. So how long is that? How long is that symbolically? What's it mean? Well, you could argue, and many believe this, that it means from the moment Jesus established the new temple, the people of God through his death and the cross and his resurrection, resurrection to the time he returns. That's the period we're looking at. That's what we're talking about. It's the time those first readers are in. This is the context you're living in. You're under pressure, being trampled. You're up against it. The heat is on. You're feeling it. It is also the time we live in right now because we are still in that in-between period between Jesus' first and second coming whenever there is still opposition, there is still persecution, there is still tribulation, there is still hostility towards Christ and his church. And so we move on because John is then told about two witnesses who will prophesy Two witnesses who will have the authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. Oh, there it is again. In other words, during this exact time that we've been talking about, this in-between period, 
for these 42 months between the first and second coming of Jesus, they are going to prophesy. They are going to share. They are going to declare. They are going to proclaim God's word. But the question is, who are they? And this is one of these times, answers on a postcard. Who are they? Well, in verse four, have a look at this with me. In verse four, these two witnesses are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, which again, those of you who know your Bibles, you'll, go, you'll be propelled back to Zechariah, where in chapter four, he sees a lamp. And he sees a lamp with seven lamps on it. And he sees two olive trees on either side of these lamps. And the olive trees provide or are the source or the oil that keep the lamps burning. And in that chapter in Zechariah 4, you have that classic line that it's not by power. Not by might, but by what? By my spirit, says the Lord. And so who or what are these two witnesses in Revelation? Are they two specific individuals? Or are they symbolic of something else and something bigger? Well, I think it's the latter. Especially if we consider that they are going to be speaking God's word for 42 months from the time of Jesus' first coming until his second. And therefore, I think along with many others, although I do appreciate there's our different perspectives in this. But again, I think this is a symbol of the church witnessing to Jesus, witnessing for Jesus as the light of the world into the darkness and against a backdrop of pressure. In Revelation 1, you'll remember, those of you who have been, again, going through this series, you'll remember in Revelation 1, Jesus uses the image of a lampstand to refer to his church. You remember he walks among them, those lampstands? And he says those lampstands are his churches. And even if you do go back to Zechariah, it was one lampstand, but it had seven lamps, which could connect to the seven churches that are mentioned here in Revelation and Asia Minor at the time. In terms of the olive trees and the oil and the not by might but by my spirit, surely this is a reference to the igniting presence and influence of the Holy Spirit who empowers his church, who anoints his church. He is the oil that keeps his church alight and burning for God. And so in these 42 months, in these 1,260 days, in this time of pressure and hostility and opportunity, in this time of judgment and mercy, in these days in between the first and second coming of Jesus, the church is called to witness. To be a spirit-empowered, prophetic witness, communicating God's word, speaking truth, calling people to repentance, calling people back to God, calling people to Jesus and shining like a city on a hill. This is who we are. We're witnesses. This is what we're meant to be doing, witnessing in these last days. But notice our dress code as witnesses, clothed in sackcloth, which again is Deeply symbolic before we reach for the Hessian. Sackcloth is, it's a sign of a prophet. It's a sign of the prophet. Those who shared God's word. Those who proclaimed God's word. And that's now our responsibility. That's now our calling as the church. We are called to declare God's word. Speak God's word into our world. But in addition, sackcloth is also a profound sign of repentance. And as witnesses, there are at least two aspects of this, that we, as we share God's word, what are we calling people to? We're calling people to repentance. 
We're calling people to Jesus. We need to keep pointing people to the cross. We need to keep pointing people to the place of repentance, of forgiveness, where salvation is found, where rescue is found, in order that they may be sealed by God and saved by Jesus. And secondly, we wear sackcloth because we as the people of God, we as the church, as followers of Jesus, must live in continual repentance. We need to keep coming back to the cross as a Christian. I need to keep, I know this. We need to keep coming back to the cross. We need to keep hearing the gospel. We need to keep gathering around this table. We need to keep every single day praying, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We need to be people who live in continual repentance. This is not a one-off, one-time decision or action. It's an ongoing process and practice. And so we dress in sackcloth because we are a repentant and a repenting people. And so during this interlude, it would seem that John has given a picture of the church's role in the first century, the letters or those seven churches that he's writing to. This is your role. This is who you are. This is what you're to do. This is what you're to wear. And he's also given us a picture of our role in the 21st century. He's reminding them and us of our identity as witnesses, spirit-empowered, prophetic witnesses, dressed appropriately, pointing people to Jesus. Because as Jesus himself said to his followers, you will be my witnesses. You will. This is what I'm leaving you here to do. This is what I'm sending you, my Holy Spirit, to empower you to do. You will be my witnesses in these last days, in these end times. But back to the text in the vision. Are, are we still, still with me? At least you're still listening. Not sure you're still with me, but you're still listening. Because there's more in this text that we need to know about our identity and reality. In, in verses 5 and 6, a literal face value reading could imply that anybody who stands in our way or harms us is in for it that we're going to have the ability to produce fire from our mouths, to consume our enemies, that we can shut up the skies, that we can stop the rain, that we can turn water to blood and send plagues in the earth. And as appealing as all that sounds, I think what it's getting at and what it's referring to, again, it's a flashback. And those, again, who are seeped in Scripture will know this. It's a flashback to the Old Testament. It's a flashback specifically to two towering giants of the Christian faith who did or who were enabled, who were empowered to do all of the above I've just mentioned. Elijah called down fire from heaven. He's the one who stopped the rain for three and a half years or else God did through him. And Moses caused the plagues to come against the people and the gods of Egypt. And I know that some people think that the two witnesses referred to in this chapter are these two guys who come back to do much the same all over again. But as I see it and as I understand it, this is John telling the church, this is John telling the, t- the new temple of God, the measured temple of God, that in the great tradition of Moses and Elijah, just like these guys, you church are now empowered and anointed by the same God to be his witnesses in this world at this time. You are empowered just like Elijah and Moses were that great tradition to be God's voice to the nations today, to be his witnesses. It turns out that as John shares this vision, they, the church then and us now need to be prepared for a very similar response that the likes of Elijah and Moses received, the reaction of the world around them, which was often negative. There was kickback. There was further opposition. There was even abuse and actually death, and we know that. 
It's still the case. And before we see how it's described here, let's remember the reality of those who have died for their faith has been referenced all through Revelation. We've heard the cry of the martyrs. We've heard the cry. And remember, the word martyr derives from the word witness. We've heard the cry of the martyrs. We hear the cries of the witnesses today. And throughout the New Testament, this idea that as Christians, as Christ's witnesses, we will be poured out. We will be persecuted because of Jesus and for Jesus. It's all through Scripture. It should come as no surprise, and it didn't to these first Christians, it shouldn't to us, that being Christ's witnesses in this world at this time, in between Jesus' first and second come, it carries great risk. And there are people today right now who are losing their very lives because of it. And if you look at verse 7, because for the first time and certainly not the last time we're introduced to the beast who comes out of the abyss and wages war on the witnesses and kills them. Which if you just stop reading there would be a shocking, frightening and deeply distressing reality. But we need to read on. Although before we do read on, please Let's recall something we already know because as many people have said, there's nothing new in Revelation in the sense that we don't know from God's word already. We already know that our struggle as the people of God is not against flesh and blood. Don't we realize this, church? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil. We know this. And so monstrous antichrist forces, if that's the term we want to use, active behind the scenes. It's not a new concept. And as you read on in Revelation, we're going to hear more. We're going to discover more about this particular hellish beast. But we already know we're in a battle. Dark forces are out to overcome Christ's witnesses. And the church in here we read that, and I'm quoting verse 8. Now, here we read that the church, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Wow, what a verse. How do you wrap your head around that? Because this, and but what I love about this particular verse is it even recognizes symbolism. So what is going on? How do we make sense of this? Well, where was their Lord crucified? Well, that's Jerusalem, wasn't it? But it's been leveled. And symbolically, it's now called Sodom. And what do we know about Sodom? Well, that is that city of immorality and corruption in the Old Testament. It's also called Egypt, which is a place of oppression. It's a place of slavery. It's a place of resistance to God and to God's people. And then as you read on in Revelation, when it talks about the great city, those of you who know Revelation will know that the great city then refers to Babylon, which for the people reading this letter at the first time in their context referred to Rome. And so you're left wondering, like, where exactly? Like, where exactly is this talking about? Well, one answer, and I did say this was puzzling, one answer is that the great city in this context refers to every city and every place which resists God. Every place that resists his inbreaking kingdom, his church, his witnesses. It's every city that loves darkness rather than light, that rejects Jesus, that rubbishes redemption, that refuses repentance, that lives for themselves, and we all know those cities. We all know them. 
And so we go back to the dead bodies because they don't stay dead. Of course, they don't stay dead. And after three and a half days, right, okay. And this is verse nine. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all who saw them. And again, Old Testament bells start ringing all over the place because these words are more or less directly taken from Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, where God's word speaks, where the spirit of God enters those bones and they stand up as a great army. And John is saying that although the beast overcomes the witnesses, the spirit of God breathes life back into them, the point being that the church of Jesus will not be destroyed. The church of Jesus will not be destroyed. Or to quote Jesus, the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is not saying that individual Christians will not die, will not lose their lives, will not be killed for their faith. We know that is happening, but it is saying that despite the opposition to the witnesses, despite the opposition to God's church, Christ's church, the people of God, they will not be killed off forever. God will revive his church, and he does, and he has done throughout history, time and time again, in this city, in every city. And will do one day forever in the eternal city of God. The beast will not win. It can rage and it will wreak havoc. And yes, it will. But ultimately, and this becomes apparent, it is a, it is a defeated foe and monster. Church, we are, this is our identity. And we need to understand this. We are a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered prophetic witness will, which will face intense opposition and kick back from all kinds of places and all kinds of opponents. But we don't give up. We don't back down and we don't shut up. We accept, we embrace our identity, we dress accordingly, and we keep looking to Jesus. And so one last verse before the seventh trumpet sounds. Verse 13, where it says, a tenth of the city falls and 7,000 are killed in a great earthquake, which sounds awful and it is, but again, their numbers and their symbols and their references back to the Old Testament, but what they do is they reveal a different story from what was previously told. And so, for example, when you go to Isaiah 6 and verse 13, you discover God is going to save one-tenth and nine-tenths are going to fall. Here in Revelation 11, it's the other way around. One-tenth is going to fall, but nine-tenths are now going to be saved. Amos 5 God says a city, in a city of a thousand, a hundred is only going to be left, or in a city of a hundred, only ten is going to be left. In other words, you do the maths, that's a tenth are going to be saved, and nine tenths are going to be lost. Here in Revelation, it's reversed again. It's one tenth that is lost and falls. It's nine tenths that are saved. And so what you're dealing with here again are symbols of mercy. John discovers Jesus is reversing the arithmetic. One-tenth saved, nine-tenths destroyed has been the norm, has been the pattern. Now it's one-tenth destroyed, nine-tenths saved. That's a very different equation. And the implication here is that this is in part due to the faithful witness of the witnesses. And as a great earthquake shakes the world, and as God's judgment unfold, and they are unfolding, and they're unfolding with greater intensity, and we know that, but as this happens, people are turning to God in repentance. And to quote the verse, they are given glory to the God of heaven. And this is our prayer, and this is our desire, and this, we are, this is what we've been called to do, is go and share Jesus, and go and call people to repent. Just like Peter in that first day of Pentecost, whenever he shared Jesus, people said, how do we respond? Repent call people to repentance 
and then be baptized and being, receive the Holy Spirit and go and be his witnesses. And so, as I have attempted to navigate our way through the second half of this puzzling pause, we have discovered as the readers of the first, the first time round did, that here's what we're called to do. Here's what we're instructed to do. And here's what we simply must do as the people of God, as the church today, against a backdrop of ongoing and increasing judgment and opposition, as the end draws near and it is drawing ever near, as we live in these last days, as the enemy continues and increasingly flexes their muscles, what are we called to do? Witness. Witness. Proclaim God's word. Not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. We are to be a prophetic witness, clothed in power from above like Moses and Elijah, but also clothed in sackcloth because as a repentant, repenting people, we're calling, calling others to do likewise. That's our task. That's our identity. That's our dress code. May we live it out and maybe be Christ's witnesses in these last days. I'm going to ask the guys to come back again. Next time we look at this, we're going to hear the seventh trumpet blow. If you look at the end there from verse 15 to the end of this, we're going to hear the seventh trumpet blow. And you know what? At this point, time's up. The end comes. Or is it? Or is it? Because it seems that yes, it is. And then it's not. Because what we'll do the next time around is we again get another camera angle into what is going on. Because that's what we remember. It's not sequential. It's not chronological. It's just lots of different angles on what is playing out in the stage of history. And that's what's going to happen next time around. Seventh trumpet blow, which is the end. But then we're into chapter 12 and 13, and it continues. We're going to close by singing, O Church, Arise. And so this is a song that calls us to arise as a church, to reach out to those who are in darkness, to be Christ, but to stand against the enemy, to face the trials. All of this comes out in this Getty song written, to know that one day we then will stand with Christ in glory. So church, let's be who we're meant to be. Let's do what we're meant to do, and let's make sure we're wearing what we're meant to be wearing. Let's sing.